Telescope Shopping in Japan with Justin Lee on episode 318 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars and looking at the night sky. And uh, Shane, before we get going here, I think we have a Patreon supporter to thank uh, briefly. Yeah, for sure. Thank you very much, Austin. Uh, You are our newest Patreon supporter. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate all of our Patreon supporters. It really helps us out an awful lot. Yeah. Thanks, Austin. Uh, Again, really appreciate it. And for other listeners, please consider making a Patreon commitment to the Actual Astronomy Podcast yourself. Justin Lee is an amateur astronomer from British Columbia. He has a double major from the University of British Columbia in computer science and philosophy. He is an avid trail runner, hiker, cyclist, and climber. Yet, most importantly, he is a listener of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. We've corresponded a little bit in the past few months as he reached out with some advice about the Skywatcher AZ-EQ6, which I was contemplating and subsequently purchased. And then recently, he was on a trip to Japan and sent us some fantastic photos. We were like, we got to get you on the show and talk about shopping in Japan for telescopes. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. I always enjoy chatting with listeners via email, and then it's uh, really nice to have somebody on the podcast to actually talk about what what they're up to and uh, what they're doing. So, you know, Chris and I record a whole bunch of episodes. We schedule them to release at certain points. So I don't know if this one has been released yet or not, but we sort of gave a teaser of this episode and Chris referenced the 13 millimeter Naglers that I sold you and, and said that you wanted to come on the show because... Uh, you were very unhappy with the purchase and gave me a good laugh. So, but um, more importantly, I think is, uh, uh, you know, I love connecting with some bino viewer astronomers because, you know, we're not a large group. Maybe we can work that into the conversation a little bit today too. Maybe let's just start at the beginning here uh, of your astronomy journey and, and just maybe when did you first get the astronomy bug or, or gain an interest in in some visual observing or or, you know, spending some time under the night sky? So I think I was always interested in astronomy since I was a kid, um, but it really ignited when my parents bought me this um, book for Christmas. Um, I think it's called Astronomy, A Visual Guide. Um, and so once I got that book, I was reading through it and it would tell me all, all these um, deep sky objects that I could see. And it would tell me what telescope I would need to see them. And a lot of them, it, it said, you know, an eight inch telescope will let me see it. So I convinced my parents to go take me to the local uh, telescope store and uh and I walked out with a, an eight-inch um, Antares Dobsonian, um, which I think was bigger than me at the time. So it was really <laughs> heavy for me to lug out. Um, I lived in it, the telescope lived in the basement, so I would have to carry it up a couple flights of stairs. And I remember doing that trip a lot for several years. And I just observed myself in the backyard for for years, and just like got to really learn the night sky and you know observe the planets and. Uh, you know, try to hunt some some of the galaxies and nebulas down. And yeah, it was just an amazing time. I, I just remember like sitting and sketching Saturn sometimes. And yeah, just it just kind of snowballed from there. And I just fell in love with astronomy. Have you always been sketching uh, since the very start then, Justin? No. So I, I had a little bit of a, a gap, a hiatus after I graduated from uh, UBC. So I didn't really do any astronomy for about four or five years. And then during COVID, I kind of started getting back into it. Um, so I haven't started sketching yet, but I'm kind of interested. I know that Chris, you're a big sketcher, um, and I'm I'm kind of intrigued about trying to do some of that stuff too. Eight-inch Dobsonian, that was your first telescope, and then you've uh, migrated to to some other equipment. It sounds like. So, what other telescopes uh, have you owned, and then uh, maybe what what do you own currently? Uh, before we talk about the most recent acquisitions. Sure. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> So um, after I decided to get back into the hobby, I really wanted to get something portable and easy to move around because I I live no, now in North Vancouver and light pollution is not so good here. Um, so I was looking for some some something in the four inch refractor range, um, and I I talked to um, Harut, the owner of the local store here called Mercurian Fine Optics, and he really suggested that I get a, a four inch Takahashi. Um, wanted me to get the the doublet because of the fast cooling and mm-hmm. he was raving about how good the fluorite was and um, so I definitely have caught the fluorite bug now um, so I ended up getting the four inch um, tack and then it sort of snowballed from there so I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of refractors so I ended up buying another 72 mil astrotech the ED2 um, telescope 
um, and then ended up getting uh, the Mead 10-inch. And this is all in the last year, so my acquisition speed has been relatively high. It's been a bit of a dangerous <laughs> journey. <laughs> but like, I would look at the planets in my 4-inch, and it was amazing and everything, but I'd always want some some more detail. And so I went back and talked to Harut, and he was raving about this 10-inch Mead that he had. Um, and he, he had it out, um, and he said the, the views were amazing. And then another observing buddy of mine, Felix, was also there that night when he was testing out the 10-inch, and he said the views were just phenomenal. So yeah, ended up taking that home too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When we were chatting, you, you, cause I'm not, I wasn't that familiar with the, uh, the Mead uh, ACF series and you said, Oh, the 10 inch is really nice. And I looked at the price and I went, Hmm. Yeah. I bet you it is nice for that price. You know, we, we sometimes get in trouble for uh, emptying people's bank accounts out with what we talk about, but it sounds like, uh, Mark Arian might be in the same, uh, same category. <laughs> And the funny thing is the owner is the guy who sold me the eight inch job like 15 years ago. Really? Do you still have the eight inch? I still do. It's in my basement. I've actually, yeah. when I first got my four inch tack, I was doing some comparisons with the eight inch. Okay. My, the, the eight inch in my mind was the best thing in the, in the entire world. Yep. And then unfortunately the, the, the four inch was far superior. Mm-hmm. Um, it was far sharper and more contrasty. Maybe mm-hmm. the eight inch is getting a little bit old and the coatings are starting go, to go a little bit. But I couldn't believe the difference in the level of detail. You know, another kind of interesting side note to that is, you know, we've talked to a number of different guests on the show and uh, it's very interesting to me how many people do start start out with an eight inch uh, Newtonian. And in fact, you know, I think Chris, you're one of your early scopes, maybe your first scope. Yeah, mine was as well. And uh, they're just a wonderful telescope. And, you know, what I really love about the eight inch Newtonians beyond their capability is the accessibility. You know, if somebody is new to the hobby, you're not necessarily sure if you're going to love it, right. And do it on a regular basis. So, you know, the price of an eight inch Newtonian is just fantastic to me in terms of the quality and capability you get. So it's, it's one of the reasons why we like to recommend it an awful lot too, to, to people getting into the hobby. And, you know, another one too, is that AT72 that you've got, um, you know, those seem to be just in just about every astronomer's closet now, you know, it's, it's another great telescope at a great price point too. Yeah. Cheaper than some eyepieces. Yeah, Exactly. What do you mount the uh, 72 on, Justin? I'm curious because you have the AZEQ6 like I now do, although I haven't used mine yet. But uh, what, do you, what are you mounting the, the little scope on? So I have the Stellarview M2C mount, um, which I use also with my 4-inch um, refractor. Um, but I also have this um, Manfrotto flu- fluid head on a carbon fiber tripod. And I oh. find that holds it perfectly well. Shane, you've got a similar setup to that, uh, I think, don't you? Well, I have the M2C and uh, love that mount. I use that uh, definitely with my four inch tack, my my 76 tack, uh, really all my telescopes I've used that mount. Um, I do have a, it's a pretty old Manfrotto fluid head mount that I've used occasionally for some of my smaller telescopes. And I really like a fluid head mount. I, I haven't used it probably as much as I should, but I love the smoothness of it. And just the the stability, um, you know, mounting a telescope on top of the mount, as opposed to like a side mount, like the M2C just adds, I think a little bit more stability, which I crave. Like I, you know, I've said it before on the show that I am extremely uh, aware of any vibration and it drives me insane. So I do whatever I can to get rid of it. And like I say, the fluid mounts seem to really do well, at least with smaller telescopes, um, I don't have a lot of experience with those fluid mounts. I know you can get ones with, you know, super uh, or fairly large capacity that can handle a larger telescope, but be interesting to to talk to somebody that maybe has mounted some larger optics on those mounts. Yeah. The largest one I've mounted was my 76 tack. Um, and it's pretty stable on it. The only trouble I have with it is when I'm pointing near the Zenith, it's quite hard because it, it wants to creep down mm-hmm. and I, so I have to lock it in place and, um, so it's the smoothness is kind of goes away when you're pointing super high up in the night sky. That's what I found at least. Okay. Interesting. Let's uh, talk a little bit about astronomy clubs and, uh, sort of topical. Uh, maybe you can start by telling us where you are tonight and what are you doing tonight? Uh, Justin, you're not joining us from your home. You're somewhere else. Yeah. So tonight I'm at SFU, which is a bit odd because I'm mostly affiliated with the UBC astronomy club. But the RASC Vancouver um, is based out of uh, SFU, and we actually have an observatory here, um, a 70-centimeter um, 
I think it's uh, Richie Kretchen, the Plane Wave 700. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, we do monthly events here. Um, so the, the RAS, RASC does um, outreach events here every clear Friday, once a month. Or actually, it might be every week. Um, I'm not sure. It's been so cloudy here. We haven't yeah. had one for so long. <laughs> I honestly don't quite remember. Um, but yeah, like, so I think in about an hour, we're doing a show and telescope. So they're going to bring out some cool telescopes and tell us about it. So I'm kind of excited to go and I'm always eager to look at other tel- other people's telescopes. Very neat. Have you belonged to uh, many astronomy clubs? So it sounds like you're involved in the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada as well as uh, the UBC Astronomy Club. And then in some of the photos, because I've been uh, checking out a lot of the, the great photos and stories and that that you write in your your astronomy blog, we'll we'll talk about that at the end. But it looks like you've got a great group of of people to go observing with some of the photos you sent, kind of like a motorcycle gang, but for astronomy. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right for me. Um, <laughs> the UBC Astronomy Club I've been involved with since I was a first year uh, at, at UBC. Um, and it's grown tremendously since. Um, I was the president there f- uh, for one year in my third year. Okay. Um, and then after I graduated, I lost tr- touch with the club, at, you know, as everybody graduates out. And then I got re- re-involved um, during COVID and I couldn't believe the the group of people that were there. It was, I think our exec team now is like 30 people. So um, it is a pretty large club. Um, and yeah, we do a lot of outreach events and try to show as many students as we can, uh, the, the planets and the comets and and the moon. Um, and so it's been really fun being involved with them. Uh, another huge benefit to the club, though, is um, UBC is a relatively well-funded university. And so uh, we can write grant applications for telescopes. And we've been pretty successful at getting some interesting grants. And in the last year, we got the um, uh, the APM 140, which is a five and a half inch refractor. Nice. And we also have a 16 inch uh, Richie Crutchin, which are currently in the process of fixing. So yeah, it's really fun to be involved with the club because I can manage their equipment and the equipment is growing rapidly under my watch. <laughs> <laughs> Leverage all means possible to acquire gear and, and try different things. I love it. Suddenly you'll see like the uh, membership uptick at the UBC Astronomy Club is just like vertical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Very cool. And some of the members, like you were, you were shooting me some photos, some of the other members there have some pretty cool gear. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about some of the other equipment that uh, folks have there and what you've been able to look through? So um, a lot of the students don't have any of the equipment because um, they're just there because they just love astronomy. But a couple of other members have uh, equipment. Um, Sean, my friend who I observe with quite often, um, he has a four inch, uh, the MP101, um, the Teleview refractor, as well as an eight inch uh, SCT from Mead. Um, And then my colleague, uh, who isn't really affiliated with the club, um, but uh, Jeff, I, I actually found out that he was an observer because I was on a Zoom call with him. And he had some telescopes in the back, just like you do, like Shane. And I was like, oh, like you have a 12-inch daub. And then we started chatting and we've been observing ever since. Um, but I think, yeah, those are the only two really that I've met at UBC. I've met the other members of the bicycle gang um, while I've been out observing. <laughs> because in Vancouver, there aren't that many great places to observe from. So when you go to the local spots, you'll see lots of astronomers there, mostly imagers, but there's been a couple um interesting folks I've met, including Felix. I told him I was going to mention him on this okay. podcast, so hopefully he's okay <laughs> with it. Um, he has um, an 18-inch uh, telescope as well as maybe like nine refractors. He, he oh. doesn't change eyepieces. He tra- he changes the telescope for, for power, <laughs> is what he told me. That's a really smart way to do it, actually. So that, that you got to match makes... the exit pupils. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That suddenly makes me feel not so bad for all of the gear I have because I'm I'm nowhere near that level. <laughs> exactly. You haven't mentioned this though, because I found out this. I, I don't know whether you wrote this or I've been doing some some muckraking on you, but you own a timeshare in a 15-inch Dobsonian. Is that you like split one? So do you get seven and a half inches of aperture? How does this work? <laughs> yeah, we just stick a vinyl here and we one eye each. <laughs> I love um, it. <laughs> That was a bit of a crazy story, actually, because I was I always look on Facebook Marketplace for telescopes um, and I haven't had much luck. Honestly, there's not usually it's pretty crappy stuff that's being sold on there. Yeah. But then one time I was um, in a meeting for the astronomy club and then I saw this 15 inch obsession come up for two thousand dollars. Oh, and I was like, oh, this must be like a scam or something. Mm -hmm. 
And it was up for a week. So I, I assumed that if it was real, it would have already sold. Um, but I reached out and the guy still had it. And he said it was from um, his uncle's estate, I think. The only issue was with it was that he had accidentally thrown away the trust pulls. The trust pulls are pretty custom. So they're they're not, you know, you can't go to Amazon and just order replacement trusses. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, I was a bit worried about it because, you know, it might be hard to replace. Um, but um, Jeff, I told Jeff, my colleague, and he was really excited about it, more excited than I was. And he was like, I'll, I'll go half in with you. And I was like, <laughs> and this was right after I bought my 10 inch mead. So I was like, yeah, half sounds really good. <laughs> so we drove out there and we looked at the telescope. It was in great shape. The mirror had like the test report and everything. And then, yeah, we bought it for, for the $2,000. The guy threw in a paracor, which is awesome. Wow. Um, and then we uh, reached out to the owner of Obsession, um, Dave uh, Kriegi, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. We went back and forth for a while trying to figure out exactly what length the poles have to be because every mirror is a little bit unique. And so small little deviations from the focal length will result in the eyepiece not focusing. Mm-hmm. And so we he managed to um, make us a replacement pair. And yeah, it's been working great ever since. The first night we put it together, we were really worried that the eyepiece wasn't going to reach focus and that we had spent $1,000 on these poles for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great find. And I'm sure that will be a, a great telescope for many years for, for you and Jeff. Have you tried the Bino Viewer in, in the Obsession? Not yet. We've only had one real night out with it so far um, because we got it kind of late last year and it took us a while to get the poles out. But the one night that we've had it out, it was superb. Like the optics are are really good. I can't wait to actually see the planets through them. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be quite the planetary scope too. Yeah, I've looked through a couple of obsessions, um, I think a 15 and a 20. And they're wonderful telescopes. You know, every every part of those telescopes are, are great. Um, you know, it's it's a lifetime instrument, really. So maybe just a quick segue into bino viewing. You do bino view. Um, do you exclusively bino view? Do you mono view? Do you have a preference between using two eyes or one eye? I do both. Um, I think for mostly for deep sky stuff, I'm into the mono viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because I have the William Optics bino viewer. And so they don't have the clear aperture required for the wide field um, eyepieces. I think you can only put like a 19 mil panoptic on it. And that's Mm -hmm. the widest you can go, not the 24. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've been mostly using them for lunar and for planetary. And I really, really enjoy that much more than mono viewing. I think I can see way more detail. Mm -hmm. Um, My favorite combo actually with the Binovir are are with the 13 Naglers and with my 10 inch Mead. um, The view of the moon is just incredible it really feels like you're floating in space just like hovering over the moon Mm -hmm. Um, the amount of detail you can see is just stunning so i I really like that combo but i do want to upgrade my final viewers (laughs) i don't love the william optics final viewers they're the the diopter adjustments are a little bit finicky and i don't like the thumb screw it can Mm -hmm. sometimes get the collimation off for me so yeah, I I did have one a long time ago, a, a William Optic Bino Viewer, and for the same reasons, uh, I pursued a, a, an upgrade, and I'm quite happy with that. Certainly can relate to additional detail and that floating effect looking at the moon. One thing I've noticed uh, as well, Bino Viewing, there's times where the seeing is maybe moderate, certainly not great. And when I mono view in those conditions at the planets, it's just, it's not worth it. You can't really pick out enough detail. So I move on to other things, double stars, open clusters, whatever it might be. But when I bino view in those same conditions, I can like, it, it, it's almost like it elevates the seeing a little bit and, and steadies things. And I think it's just because both eyes are, you know, processing the image and maybe, you know, somehow, you know, excluding some of the garbage that's coming through. But, uh, I find that even like that part of observing is enhanced a little bit somehow with the bino viewer and, uh, really enjoy it. And, um, you know, the more I bino view, the more I just bino view as opposed to mono view. Um, I really enjoy it a lot. So anyway, interesting to, to hear your experience. Yeah, I got to try it with my my bigger telescopes, like the the 15-inch Obsession. Um, maybe even for Deep Sky, it, it'll have a place for me. Yeah, yeah, certainly the the reports online, you know, the more aperture you have, the better they are for, for the Deep Sky, because you do lose a little bit of light uh, with the Bino Viewer. 
Um, but you definitely gain an increase in contrast, um, in, in comfort, you know, that's another key factor for me for sure. Yeah, I agree. The comfort is huge. I can stare at Jupiter for hours with the bino yeah. but mono, it's just going to be too tiring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. So you mentioned, uh, it's, it's kind of cloudy or it has been cloudy in Vancouver, uh, recently. And I was there last week as we were talking about before the show and, uh, you know, being a prairie boy and being in downtown Vancouver amongst the tall buildings, I, I was getting a little crazy not being able to see the horizon. Uh, and I was also getting a little crazy at just seeing clouds and not any blue sky. <laughs> so so how is it in Vancouver to observe, you know, minus the light pollution, how is the the weather typically there? Do you get some good nights? And if you do, what times of the year are you, are you more likely to get some good conditions? Yeah, I think the prime observing times are probably July, August, and September. Mm-hmm. Um, we had actually a superb October last year. I think I observed like 15 or 20 nights that month, wow. which was outstanding. Very unusual for Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it the the smoke has been, been a bit of an issue lately. Mm-hmm. So there's been some fires around. And so September sometimes isn't the best and sometimes August as well. Um, when I was up at Manning last August, I could actually see individual trees catching on fire. Uh, apparently, they're, that's called Whoa. candles. Um, and so we were we were observing, and there was a bit of smoke. But thankfully, when you look up, it wasn't. Uh, it, it was quite clear. Um, but it's still a little bit disturbing to know that there's fires so close to you. No kidding! Wow, I've uh, yeah, that would that would probably make me turn around and go home. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but the conditions are so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose, right? They're you're torn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, the saving grace, I think, for Vancouver is that the seeing can be quite good. And we okay. have local mountains that are close by that are quite good for observations. Um, so uh some of the best planetary observations I've had were at Seymour Mountain at about a thousand meters above the the sea level. And um, it's about a half an hour drive from my house. So it's it's very attainable. Um, it's only like Bortle seven probably. So it's, you know, it's not dark skies by any means, but for, for high power stuff, it's, it's quite good. Yeah. Do you have any star parties that are, uh, you know, an annual event nearby? Yeah. So the only star party I've ever been to in my life is the merit star party. Um, and that I don't think it's been running for the last couple of years, but I think it's coming back this year. Um, and so that's about a two hour drive from Vancouver. And then I think there's the Mount Kobu star party. Uh, which is going to be, I think, in August this year, and I'm hoping to go to that this year. Nice. That that's a great time. It's yeah. Rough. You've been right, Chris. Oh, yeah, I've been. Yeah, it's it's rough though. Um, make sure you have your spare tire and pull patch <laughs> for your yeah. Yeah, that road up there is is pretty gnarly. So yeah, we had to get break job after that one, but it's worth oh, it. No. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth it. Yeah, like you're going up, you go up there and you're just going to stay up there. The way I planned it was to go up for a couple nights and go down and do some other stuff and go back up for a couple nights. Don't do that. Just go up there and plan to be up there for however long because you don't want to be doing that road more than once in a in a long period of time. Oh, thanks for the advice. <laughs> it's very rustic, right? It's uh, they bring just the stars. In, yeah, they just bring in some porta potties and that's that's it. You're on whatever you drag up there with you. That's what you're living off of for however long are you going to do like a weekend or the full week i'm hoping to do the full week i'm also hoping to do the do the full week at the oregon star party as well oh that'll be a nice event yeah i really want to look through some big dobs so i'm quite motivated to go very good i wonder if howard bannage we're, we're talking to howard bannage on uh sunday and so he'll be after you and uh he's got a 28 inch f4 and i think he's i think he's taken it up there before if i'm not mistaken so might be able to run into him. That'd be cool. You mentioned doing some some outreach. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about the outreach that you've been involved in and kind of like what uh, what you enjoy about doing it and what you get out of it? Yeah. So um, in the last year, I've, I've been taking my four-inch telescope down to the pier. We have this um, pier that goes about 200 meters into the ocean. I'm pretty close to my house. It's about a five-minute walk. Okay. So I just walk down carrying my stellar view mount and my four-inch tack and yeah, just show people who are walking out by just the moon and the planets. And it, it's been such a good time. People, most people have not ever seen the moon or the planets through a telescope before. And it just like blows their minds. So they, there's been a lot of like swearing and some people have <laughs> been like praying at the eyepiece. Like it, it, it's been quite the experience for me. Um, and yeah, a lot of people have been really enjoying it. So 
I'm trying to do it as much as I can. Um, I tried, I mean, I, I'd also have to think about my own observations as well. The clear nights are, are not every night, but, um, you know, if the seeing isn't going to be perfect, I, I'll go down there and set up for, for the people. The people won't know. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I think I would lose my mind if I was walking along the street and saw some dude carrying a tack DZ and uh, <laughs> an M2 under his arm just going along. I'm like, hey, <laughs> what the freak? <laughs> would just be amazing and what's what's your favorite part about doing the outreach just like seeing people's reactions and stuff like that yeah it's really fun to see the reactions and to show people the things that i kind of take for granted and i think everybody should have the opportunities to look through a telescope at least once in their lives um and it's just been a great way to meet my community because it's so hard to meet you know people who who live close to you and Mm -hmm. and so people out for night stroll would just come by and i think i'm really lucky in that it's a very really safe neighborhood so i've never felt like it was you know a dangerous place to be um and yeah it's just been really nice place to spend the time and a lot of fun i can't wait to do more and you mentioned a little bit about your own observing so far and uh a little bit about your bino viewing on on the planets like Jupiter. I'm just wondering, uh, what other observational interests do you have in uh, in visual observing? So I think I'm still trying to figure out what I I'm really interested in. I think right now I'm happy to see anything and everything, including the really hard to see stuff. Um, I think one of the most um, exciting moments for me in the past year was seeing the central star of the Ring Nebula. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah, that's been like on my bucket list since I was a kid. And so mm-hmm. being able to see it like through the 18 inch, um, I think Felix had his um, four mil monocentrics on it and we were at pretty high power and it would just blink in for 15% of the time that you're looking at it. Mm. Kind of like a light that's about to die. That's kind of what it looked like to me. Okay. And so that was an amazing experience for me. Yeah, congratulations. That's a, that's a great observation. Uh, is that 18-inch uh, driven in any way to track? Yeah, it's okay. tracking mount. So that yeah. really, really helped, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Especially with that little monocentric field of view. <laughs> totally, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, late last year, we were up at um, this another other observation location called Hope Slide. And uh, we got to see the horse head. And oh. it, it wasn't even challenging in the 14 inch. It was like direct vision, like just there. So that was amazing to see too. What uh, what telescope does Felix have? What is the 18? Is it like one of the... Obsessions? It's the Skywatcher. Um, I think oh, it's the, no longer made. The Stargate, I think Stargate. it's called. Yeah, with the uh, little bearings, the track. Yeah. That's right. And then he also just recently got the 14 inch, um, the truss tube one as well. There's a lot of big aperture over there. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what uh, British Columbia is known for. Yep, big mountains and big aperture. Big, well, that's where Bill Bill Weir is just across the water there, and uh, yeah, he has he, some big scopes up there. I, I'd love to visit him. Yeah, the twenty. Bill, if you're listening, please reach out. <laughs> I'm sure Bill's one of the best people ever. I'm sure he would love for you to drop by. He's got a. I think his his main scope is like a twenty-two, if I'm not mistaken, and then he's got the he's got the it's like a solid tube, twenty inch on this huge mount. I've been up, I've been up to the scope. I haven't looked through it. It was raining that night, but it's just a ridiculous uh, beast. Yeah, it's just wild. You should, yeah, you should definitely go over there. It's a neat spot he observes from. And uh, Shane, are we ready to talk about Japan, or do you have anything else to add? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm so excited for this part of the talk. Um, Justin, when you sent that email, just saying like, you know, you had this experience in Japan going to uh, um, the Takahashi. What's the name of the store? I forget what it's called. Starbase. Starbase. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I'm aware of the store. And then when I saw the photos, I was just salivating and in dreamland. It must have been amazing to be there. So, yeah, this is awesome. (laughs) Isn't isn't Starbase the only telescope store that's the Takahashi has produced a telescope for the 80 Starbase. Isn't that for that store? I think it is. Yeah. I, it was there as well. I didn't get to look through it, but yeah. Did you see it? I did see it. Yeah. It's like an, it's like what, like an F10 Acromat or something like that. Something like yeah. That. Very affordable. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's uh, like a tripod mount. You get a couple of Kellner eyepieces, I believe, or orthos and, you know, kind of everything you need to observe is is all in the kit. Wouldn't it be nice to have a starter Takahashi scope? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that would suffice. <laughs> All right. Was your reason? Can you tell us about a bit about going to Japan? Like, were you going just just to go telescope shopping or vacation or or work? And kind of how did you end up at the telescope store? Yeah, so I was on this um, trip with my partner. Um, we called it the round the world trip, and so we went to Dubai, um, Singapore, South Korea, and Japan. Nice. And Japan was last on that trip for for a particular reason, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the scope to Dubai, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, I went to two telescope stores in Japan. Um, one called uh, Kiwoi, I think. Kiwoi yeah. has two locations: uh, one in Osaka and one in Tokyo, and then Starbase, of course. Um, so the first scope store I went to was the one in Osaka. And I walked in and it felt more like a delivery fulfillment center than a telescope store. So there weren't that many um, people there and there were there wasn't much help there. But I did ask them if they had the FS60Q, um, which is a 60 mil F10 uh, Takahashi. Um, and they had it in stock. So I just bought it right there. And I also asked them if they had the TSA120, which is a 4.7 inch uh, refractor. Yeah. And they also had it in stock. And so... I had a bit of a crisis in the store. <laughs> I think I spent an hour there just like th- thinking of all the ways I could take it back with me because we were training to Tokyo. So it was going to be also a pain to carry it just within Japan, let alone taking it back to Canada with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up asking them if they had it in stock in the Tokyo store and they said yes. And so I didn't buy the TSA 120, thankfully, um, and ended up just walking home with one tack, not two. <laughs> So is the uh, is the this is the FS sixty? Is it the one with the Q, the one point seven X extender? Yeah, that's the one I have. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful scope. I I love it because it it is just so light and portable. I always think of it as like the ultimate binocular monocular. Like it's about the size of a of a good pair of binoculars, but it's a sixty millimeter Takahashi. Yeah, that's the the scope I brought with me today. I've actually never used it, so I'm kind of excited really? to try it oh, on wow. Venus. Excellent. Did you bring a filter? Didn't bring a filter, no. You have the battery contrast booster yet? I don't, but I'm thinking about getting one. You have to get this. This is this. <laughs> anyway. Chris is a bad influence. <laughs> that that filter, it's really nice and it's inexpensive. Like it's yeah. a sort of a do-all filter. Like you can just put that in and flux uh, the right kind of light and really improves the contrast. So let's see. Um, what was it like seeing all those Takahashi telescopes together? You sent us some photos here. It's just tack upon tack upon tack upon tack. So what was that like to walk in there and see all those scopes? It was honestly overwhelming. And I thankfully, most of the telescopes were out of stock. So they were only display models. So it's not like you can go in there and oh. buy the six-inch refractor and walk out with it. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of it is back-ordered, so you have to wait um, but they had, you know, almost every production Takashi telescope on display there, mm. um, including some that are kind of odd, like they had the binoscope set up for you. So you could just buy the four inch binoscope from Takahashi and they'll like deliver it to you. I think it costs $8,000 though. Wow. Yeah. That's, I didn't even know that option existed. That's quite interesting. Is that oh. the Matsumoto EMS? That's yeah. right. Yeah. That it came with that as a bundle. Yeah. I uh, cool. I speak both Takahashi and Borg, so I'm all good. <laughs> <laughs> People are like, what did he say? <laughs> yeah, I, I I think Justin, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you also pick up some uh, uh, TOE eyepieces? Yeah, so at Starbase, I ended up buying the TOEs. I've I've had my eyes on them for quite some time, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they were just there, and so I asked to try them because I wanted to make sure they would fit my eyes. Um, and so the kind gentleman there just happily plopped out a telescope. I think he took out the 76 mil tack for me. And then, yeah, let me try um, the the three eyepieces. And yeah, they were very comfortable for me. I think that's one of the reasons I like them so much is that mm-hmm. um, they have 10 mils of eye relief, unlike some of the the, the planetary eyepieces that are really short. They, I think they only have like four mils of eye relief. Yeah. And so I find it really comfortable and yeah, they, I've been using them quite a lot on the moon and they're so nice. I, I'm a huge fan. I'm just yeah, looking yeah. at you now. These are the, uh, looks like there's a four millimeter, uh, 2.5 and a 3.3 and they're 52 degree eyepieces. So 
And there's that's just right. three. That's the whole lineup is just those three. Yeah. So I, I walked back into the store and he was like, which, which one do you want? And I said, all of them. <laughs> so I ended up taking the entire line. Thankfully, oh, there were more. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I, I'm intrigued with those eye pieces. I have uh, the Vixen HRs and, um, uh, I've, you know, at some point I would love to do a side by side because a few of the focal lengths are pretty close. I think like Vixen has a 3.4 or the ones that I have is a 3.4, 2.4 and the 1.6. And, and for the same reasons that you mentioned, like that eye relief is 10 millimeters as well. And, uh, you know, for, for short focal length eyepieces like that, having that kind of eye relief is, is quite nice. And, um, you know, the, it's not every night you can use that kind of power, but when I have used them, I've been quite impressed. Yeah, they're they're pretty pretty great. Um, I really want to do a, a comparison between them and the Super Monos. Um, Felix has a couple of of pairs of the Super Monos, so I think okay, that'll be sometime in the summer when the planets are up. Yeah, I, I have the four millimeter Super Mono, and I've been intrigued with the Toe four millimeter to potentially replace it, just because the Super Mono, as you probably know, that eye relief is almost unusable. Um, the the narrow field of view makes it seem more comfortable to use, but uh, it's still a challenging eyepiece. I'm thinking um, these glasses off eyepieces, guys. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a requirement. <laughs> No good. Shane, have, do you have any experience using the short um, eyepieces for like short focal length eyepieces with your bino viewers? Yeah. So um, I have, um, just trying to think here, I have pairs of orthos and super monos right from five millimeter all the way through to about 12, something like that. Um, the So I have... Uh, eight millimeter super monos that I find pretty easy to use in the binos. Um, the, when I put in the six millimeter pair, I struggle sometimes to merge the image, but some nights it's great. Uh, so I don't know if it's just more sensitive to maybe, um, like eyepiece, uh, placement within the, like the, the eyepiece holders. Cause you know, if that's not quite right, or if the IPD setting of the bino viewer isn't quite right, uh, you run into trouble, but, um, you know, a lot of people online will say vinyl viewing with short focal lengths just doesn't work very well. So maybe that's part of it as well. I'm not sure, but eight millimeters seems to be fine. When I go below that, I, I sometimes struggle. That's good to know. Yeah. I was considering buying the pairs for vinyl viewing, but I haven't done that yet. And I have to think about it a bit more. Yeah, this summer. So I'm still relatively new to vinyl viewing. Like last year was when was the first like year where I just pretty much exclusively bino viewed, uh, this year I want to continue down that path, but start to test some of these, uh, configurations out, you know, using some of the shorter focal length eye pieces and just see how they work. Um, so more to come on that for me, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll definitely mention it on the podcast when I do it, whether or not it's good or bad. So what else did you end up getting, uh, when you were telescope shopping in Japan, Justin, you have one more instrument, I think, that you picked up? Yeah, so I ended up buying the 76mm objective that fits into uh, the FS60's um, focuser. Um, and so I, I guess I bought one and a half tacks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. They didn't have the TSA-120 in stock, though, so oh. I, I couldn't get that, unfortunately. If, if they had it, would you have come home with the 120? I was thinking about, I was really considering it. Yeah. I was going to take the lens, uh, sell off and the focuser off and yeah. take those with me and then check yeah. the, check the tube. But I think I'm glad that I didn't buy it because I don't know, 4.7 inches. I need a six inch. Like mm -hmm. I, I want to skip that, that yeah. middle ground there. So. Yeah. The, I have the 76 as well. It's a phenomenal telescope. That one will never leave my grip. Um, and then I bought the TSA 102 and I had a Skywatcher 120 ED. And for the exact same reason you just mentioned, I sold the 120 ED. I just, I didn't feel like it was enough of a jump from the four inch. And if I'm going to stick with a larger refractor, I want probably six inches. Cause I think that becomes, you know, a, a little bit better of a jump and you'll, you'll really notice the difference then. Yeah. I've been using the APM 140, the five and a half inch refractor quite a mm. bit and it is a substantial jump over the four inch. The amount of detail that you can see on the planets goes mm -hmm. up considerably, but it's not even close to my mead 10 inch. 
Yeah. So this is the problem with Aperture. It just never ends. (laughs) It never ends. No, I've kind of got my eye on those TS Optic uh, 150 photo lines. I think they are just because I was just looking at them. Yes. The doublets. (laughs) Yeah. And they have the removable section for bino viewing, you know, so that you can achieve bino viewer focus natively without having to use like a Barlow or an OCS. And that's super appealing to me. And that's one of the reasons why I went with the TSA 102 as well, because I could achieve uh, focus with the Bino viewer without having to use any other magnifiers. So have you had a chance? So this, did you say this is the first time you're going to look through the uh, FS60 tonight? It is. Yeah, I couldn't. I can never justify using my 60 over my 76, which makes me wonder why I have both. <laughs> um but the 60 is for wide field, right? That's the reason. <laughs> 60 is is an amazing little yeah. wide field instrument. And it's the, in my opinion anyway, it's sort of like the ultimate little travel scope just because it's so small. It just disappears into the luggage. You can just take it anywhere. And then the other thing is it's just, it's such a neat little scope. Sometimes I just end up putting it right here. And I'm just like looking at that telescope all the time. I just think it's so neat. And uh, and the images through it are, are spectacular. So um yeah, and it, you get some nice powers. 355 millimeter focal length with the uh, Pentax 3.5. You, you can fit the entire moon in the field of view, but it's decent power at over 100 magnification. So it, it's a nice, nice little scope. And uh, I don't use the 1.7x um, Q portion to mine. I find that it does have some secondary color, but when I put the little filter on, it it totally uh, reduces any of that secondary color. And uh and yeah, it's so, so sharp on Venus in particular. It's a Venus a Venus machine, that little <laughs> scope. Because Venus is so bright, you just don't need, you don't need the light gathering power with Venus. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. And there's something about those little tacks and uh, even Mars. Like I, I, I almost prefer the view of Mars through my 76 rather than my 102. And I, I don't know why it just, it seems like the color is richer for some reason. And maybe it's just the nights that I was observing, but uh, I really, really like those little tacks. Maybe it's because it's a doublet, not a triplet. Could be and and different glass too. Like, I don't know if the fluorite would have that much of an impact. I I think the fluorite does better with that red spectrum, but uh, you know, hard to say. Be interesting to see how uh, you make out with that. So tell us what were the other scopes like in in the shop there? It looks like there's a a Vixen um, 200, SS in there as well in one of those shots. It's kind of a neat scope. Did you ever look at yeah, that? Yeah, I was too distracted by looking at the Takahashi's to be honest to look at the other scopes. <laughs> but I think I'll be going back next year, so I'll I'll give you an update. <laughs> they had the uh, looks like the uh, is that the Epsilon 180 that's there? Yeah, the seven. That's right. F two point seven or something like that. I was looking at the Mulon that was across. I think they had the Mulon three hundred, which would I've always wanted to look through. That's the uh, 12-inch Mulan. How much is that? Too much. (laughs) (laughs) That's the right response. (laughs) I think you were debating one of those Mulans. uh, Shane, you were looking at a 7-inch or something. Yeah, the 180 was appealing to me, just the form factor and the weight. Uh, The ultimate ultimate deciding factor for me was uh, vinyl viewing. Uh, You can't do it natively. And, you know, if I'm using a, a Barlow or something, it, the field of view, I think would just be far too narrow and too high of a magnification to really make Bino viewing viable for, uh, like exclusive viewing like that. So I, I decided to pass on it. Um, if I was to buy another tack though, I think it would be the, uh, FOA 60. That one has just, it, it always attracts me. Uh, it's always in the back of my mind. So maybe one day that'll, that might be my next tack. Mm, that that's a good question. What would your what would your ultimate last tack be, Justin? If you if you could have picked any of those scopes, I'm I'm guessing maybe it was the TSA one twenty, but maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Sort of all uh, all pricing and uh, transportation limitations aside, which one would you have picked off the shelf and happily carted out of there? That's an easy one for me because um, they don't make it anymore. Um, it's the FS one fifty two, the uh, six inch doublet. Um, oh. Great choice. Yeah. Very nice. I've looked it's, through the uh, FS128. and What did you think? It, it's excellent. I bought the next best thing, which is the, uh, or at least at the time was the Borg F, uh, F6125SD. And uh, 
boy, it was extremely close. And now Borg has reissued it. A, uh, mm-hmm. It's a 12564. Uh, and so that should be uh, virtually identical to the uh, 128, I, I would imagine. Is that the ultralight one with the carbon tube? Yeah, um, it's a resin tube. It's it's a new like new material. It, it's very interesting. There you go. You haven't begun to explore the the dark side of the tack, which is the Borg line. <laughs> <laughs> that world seems way too complicated for me. <laughs> you know, did you ever play with Lego when you were a kid? A little bit, not like this. <laughs> I was I was a Lego addict, and this is like. Lego mixed with optics, mixed with observing. Oh, mixed with some frustration when you need another adapter. But I love it. I love Borg. So <laughs> yeah. it's it's like there's two kinds of people out there in the observing realm, and that's the people that get addicted to all the little Borg adapters, and those that look at that as a headache. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> Shane, Shane made my little Borg for me, so it was relatively easy. But uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun because it's not really even that expensive, and it's sort of like Borgs are Takahashi's cheaper uh, photographic little brother kind of thing, right? So that's pretty cool for me. I, you know what I would pick? I, I'm going to pick a. Uh, uh, I was going to say a, a dark horse, but I'm going to pick a yellow horse, which is Ooh. the. Um, Epsilon. I would take the Epsilon 180 in that F2.7 um, configuration. I think that is just such a neat looking scope. And I even thought for a period of time that, and, and who knows, maybe in the future I will, um, when I get an observatory, uh, I thought that maybe when I get an observatory, I would get that scope because I've read lots of reports from the owners of the 160 who use it just for visual and what spectacular results uh, that scope yields. And then I just bought, oh, I'm not gonna give a spoiler, but I bought a new eyepiece. And this eyepiece would work very well in that telescope, so. Interesting you mentioned that, Chris. You've just opened a can of worms here. Uh, I wanna do an unboxing on the show. That's what I wanna do. No, I'm backing up to the Epsilon. Uh, Yeah, because in my, you know, short Mulan, uh, you know, consideration, I kind of ended looking at the Epsilon a little bit, but I wasn't sure, you know, really if it was a visual instrument, it really is designed for photography, but, um, I guess I should do a little more research on the visual aspects of it. Yeah. I I mean, I've read, uh, reviews that, I mean, I think when it comes to Takahashi, it's, it's just hard to go wrong. I mean, I'm not going to get disagreement from this crowd here tonight. (laughs) No, (laughs) but those scopes, they're, they're just spectacular. And yeah. in essence, I think a telescope that works really well for uh, photographic purposes, maybe with some, some oddball exceptions, like if you were looking at certain uh, RC type telescopes with large secondaries and that, uh, maybe they would uh, present some limitations. But I think uh, with a little Newtonian like that, now the only downside is those epsilons are, I think it's fairly heavy. I think it's like around a 22 or 28 pound instrument or something mm-hmm. to that effect. But um, did you, did you get a close look at that one there when you were in the store, Justin? No, I was too, too busy looking at the Mulan because <laughs> <laughs> I was also considering the 180 because it was sh- way shorter than the yeah. TSC 120. So I was like, oh, yeah. that would, I could carry that on. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at your photo, you actually have a pretty good photo and it looks like maybe this is uh, not the 180 that you've, you've got a photo of the 130. I had to zoom way in. It's a high res photo that you took so I could zoom way in on it. Looks like it's got the K-Astic rings. Those are beautiful rings. Do you have K-Astic rings or what are you running for rings on your tux? Just the clamshell. That's too I'm, I'm I'm team clamshell as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Shane doesn't like my uh, my Prima Luca Labs ring. Uh, that's uh, the red rings from the Prima Luca Labs. I love it. <laughs> also, just wanted to mention one of the best things about buying the tax in Japan, other than the price, which is substantially lower than North America, is they throw in the finder scope for free. So it's just in the wow. box. That almost makes the plane ticket. Like free at that point. <laughs> Those wonderscopes are expensive. They, they are. are nice. Oh yeah, they're incredible too. Wow, that's great. I didn't know that. Hmm, very interesting. You get the clamshells in that there. 
as well. The clamshells are extra, unfortunately. Have you seen them make those? There's videos online them making the focusers and clamshells and stuff. No, I haven't. I, I really want a factory tour, but apparently those are rare, really rare and hard to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can, yeah, it's, it's a very, but there's good videos online people can find. So what else, uh, what else astronomy wise, um, did you do in Japan or was it really just the telescope stores or maybe tell us a little bit else about your travel to Japan? I'm just kind of curious about that in general. Um, for me, for sure. The highlight was the telescope stores, but yeah, we had a lot of good food and just loved being back in Japan after so long being away. And it was, it just recently reopened as well. So yeah, it was just a really lovely country to travel in. But yeah, the highlight for me was for sure the Takashi store. Yeah, very cool. As somebody who eats a lot of fish, I feel like it would be a good place for me to go. <laughs> oh, the quality of the fish there is unbelievable. As good as the telescopes, I'd say. Anything else that uh, you'd like to chat about before we wrap up there, Justin? Um, no, nothing in particular. I'm I'm hoping to build a telescope, um, but yeah, that's going to be a bit of a longer term project. So maybe I'll give an update later when things are a little bit more clear. <laughs> You'll get the bug when you're down at the uh, Oregon Star Party for sure. Yeah, that'll be great. And how about you, Shane? Do you have anything to add to this episode? Just want to say this was a ton of fun, Justin. I love just kind of random conversations like this and and hearing about your experience uh, at the Starbase Telescope Store uh, was great. Uh, you know, wish you nothing but the best with first light tonight of the, the FS60. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, can we give out your uh, blog address? Do you mind? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's can I, can you say it? Yeah, go ahead. It's um, Takarito. It's a T-A-K with a burrito. So you can figure that out. <laughs> I love that. That's that's the best URL of all time. <laughs> T-A-K-U-R-R-I-T-O dot com. Beautiful. That's great. And people should go on there and check it out. It's a wonderful blog. Lots of uh, great uh, stories about going public observing. Some beautiful photographs of Justin's equipment where he takes it observing. Uh, I think people really would enjoy that. Lots of observations. Saw your observation of the horse head in there and lots of other stuff. And uh, yeah, lots of great stuff. So thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, Justin, we had a blast. Thank you. So... To follow up, dear listeners, please do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers you know on social media or wherever you can connect with folks. Uh, you can always send an email to a friend, post on your club's forum, and we'd appreciate it as the more people who listen to the show, the more we can grow. Thanks again for listening. And you can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>